Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by Peter Houghton. Born and raised in Liverpool, Peter co-founded, edited and wrote for the legendary Merseyside fanzine, The End, which featured football, music and fashion, with John Peel listing it as one of his all-time favourite magazines. During the 80s, Peter was also the co-founder of the Liverpool group The Farm, who eventually set up their own independent record label, produced records and went on to score a string of top 40 hits such as Groovy Train and The Haunting Altogether Now from the number one album Spartacus, which was released in 1991. The group still perform live throughout the UK and Ireland, and you can expect to see Peter and the lads having a point at one of the many festivals throughout the year. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you Peter Hoon. So, Peter Hooten, welcome to Let Christy Take It. Very, very happy to have you. Pleased to be Brilliant. Peter, can you just take us back a bit to your youth and uh, growing up in Liverpool and yeah. your early interest in music? What got you started? Um, it's probably, you know, I was, I was interested because the family were always having parties, you know, and... Um, the family when we had when we had like Christmas parties or whatever, everyone had to sing, you know. And most of the kids never wanted to sing, but I was obsessed with West Side Story, and um, I was obsessed with that f- song called Somewhere. There's a place, but you know. And I used to sing that, uh, and it was just a family tradition. People used to have to sing, you know, go around the table or whatever. And a lot of me. Uh, Uncles and aunties were great singers, you know, but they'd never had any career in, in music and that. But I, because I sang in front of them, I was a bit, um, I wasn't really that self-conscious. A lot, a lot of the other kids, grandchildren or whatever, were a bit, you know, and they wouldn't do it. But um, but I, I don't remember this, but my mum used to say I always used to dress up uh, as a priest and give out communion to people. I don't know. But... Also, in when I went to, my mum was one of those people who, like her mum, went to mass every day when it was in Latin, you know, and he didn't understand the word of it. But um, she said I started singing probably when I was about two years old at the back of the church. And it used to annoy the priests, you know, uh, because I was singing, I think it was Little Donkey. I can't remember. I can't remember, but for whatever reason, I was singing, you know, and... Uh, uh, it was tolerated, I think, by the by the uh, the hierarchy of the church <laughs> because kids could do what they liked and that couldn't do. But when did you start uh, writing your own lyrics? Uh, it's probably after um, it's probably after John Lennon died, uh, nineteen eighty. I started putting uh, pen to paper. I'd gone to a school which was um, school in Bootle. And the reason they 
uh, it was opened up was the Don Bosco Silesian Priests opened it up, and they identified areas in the UK which had the worst education record, you know, and um, Boot was one of them. But it was still a grammar school, um, so a few of us went from our area. Went we we were just on the edge of Boot. We were more like near Ainsley Racecourse, uh, so we went to that school. And I had a few attempts at writing uh, poetry and all that, but it, they were ridiculed by the cl- by the teacher. I'd had a big argument with the teacher. Uh, the teacher was the cross country run runner. Um, he was the he was the manager of the cross country team, but I wanted to play football. But he wanted me to play cross country uh, to do cross country because it was it was out of the out of the like hundred boys in our year. I was probably the third best runner. Wasn't the best, but it was about, but it was always based on a team, cross country teams, you know. So he wanted me to run, and I wanted to play football. So um, I ended up getting a, a doctor's note saying I couldn't do cross country. <laughs> I wanted to be like, have you ever seen loneliness of uh, 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 loneliness of long distance runner? And it's a brilliant film, black and white, where he it's a Borstal, and he uh, he's a good runner, and he he hates the hierarchy of the Borstal. So he's winning the race and he just stops on the line. That's what I wanted to do all the time to this teacher. He was he was basically bullying me into doing something I didn't want to do, you know. Uh, eventually, I, I, I was able to play football, though, and uh, I won that battle. But he got his revenge in an, in an English class when we were asked to write some creative a poem or some creative writing. And he asked the person next to you that to uh, mark it. So the person marked it next to me, and he was me mate, like, but he was saying, this poem is verging on idiocy. <laughs> and he, um, he said, this is the worst poem I've ever read, you know, and all that. So he read it out to the class to much laughter because I was, like, in the football team, and you weren't supposed to write poetry, where you know. Yeah. It was like a no-no, you know. So I was ridiculed. I suppose that was the first idea of writing a song, you know. Yeah. But it put me off for years, probably... Uh, well, I'd probably be about 12, 13. It probably put me off for 10 years before I wrote anything, you know. And that, that teacher experience, that kind of drove you on to be the teacher that he wasn't, because I know you went to college and you had a kind of goal to work with youth and community and, and you wanted uh, to be teaching. Yeah, I wanted, when I was, I, um, I, did, a, I did a politics uh, degree and then I went into <clears throat> postgraduate certificate of education. It's basically because I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to, I went to work for a few weeks in a housing office in Bootle uh, as a trainee housing manager, and it was absolute hell on earth, you know. It was like I was going, I was getting uh, I was getting taught the ropes. So you go into these mad houses, you know, and they say, uh, you know, you might be a bit upset with the state of this house you're going into, So, but don't react. You know, I was going into these houses, and they were like, I just didn't want to do it, you know. So after two or three weeks, I thought, what, what can I do? Oh, I'll have to go to college then. So I went to um, college, did the degree, and then um, did a postgraduate certificate education in PE and history. And um, then I went into teaching only on a, as a supply teacher. But I was causing chaos in the, um, <clears throat> in the staff rooms. Basically, a lot of uh, – it was just before Thatcher uh, got voted in. And because I'd studied politics, I knew – a political doctrine, you know, the neoliberalism. And I knew what was coming, you know. There's a lot of these teachers 
in the common room with like pro Thatcher, you know. And yeah. you got to remember that in those days, the Tory vote hadn't really collapsed in Liverpool or Merseyside. It was still a third of the vote, maybe, you know. It's totally yeah. collapsed since the 80s. Yeah. But in That's those surprising days... That's surprising to hear that, Peter, that, 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 that there would have been a lot of votes for Thatcher in Liverpool. Yeah. The, the, well, yeah, there were, and the, the constituency I was in, which was Sefton, doesn't exist anymore. It was Crosby then, and South Sefton now. Um, but the, if you look at the 79 election, I think uh, they get in. I think they get in with 30% of the votes or whatever. But um, <clears throat> a lot of people weren't aware of what she, they These teachers thought she'd been a good Secretary of State for Education. You know, and a lot of them were old school. And it was the art teacher who came up to me and said, Peter, you better tone down your views on the politics, you know, because a lot of the other teachers don't like it, you know. <laughs> so he said, this isn't the job for me because it wasn't going to change my opinion. And, um, so they went, in, they went into the youth service then, yeah. Were you gigging with the excitements then or was that pre-that? No, I wasn't in the excitements really. That was be. They were probably gigging them, but I wasn't in them. You know, um, I wasn't really in them until early 80s. But no, but I started a magazine called The End. And that was based upon uh, one of the lads who who lived in... I was just given an estate. <clears throat> I wasn't given a youth club. I was just said, that's your estate. Get on with it. Contact young people. You know, it sounds bizarre now. Work, you know. Yeah. So um, the idea was to do anything that people wanted to do, you know. So I knew this lad who did a mod fanzine, and he was only 17, you know, and I thought, well, that's good. You know, maybe we should do a, a <clears throat> some sort of magazine. But I just didn't want it to be about football. Uh, just didn't want it to be about music. I wanted to have some football in, involved because even though some people were involved or interested in music, most people like football, you know, or and it, it wasn't really a football fanzine. It, it's described as a football fanzine, but it wasn't really. It was, it was really an observation, observational magazine. It just took the piss out of everything, uh, <clears throat> everything. So every sacred cow that was known to scousers was attacked. You know, no one was given that. You know, but it was all done tongue in cheek. You know, I believe. A few local DJs got upset by it, but some were, uh, most of them took it on, the, you know, took it in the the humour it was meant. And John Peel actually, um, we sent one to him, you know, and he actually said he'd never had uh, um, an introduction like it. We'd sent him the magazine and and the letter intrigued him, he said, because we were sort of like saying, you know, not everyone's into Georgian folk music, believe it or not, John, you know. So he just liked you know, the style of, of the writing in it, you know, and he championed it and other, a few other people championed it, but we wanted people, we encouraged people to write, you see. It was a big, um, I'd written, I hadn't written anything myself before that, but I'd read books like um, Jimmy Boyle's Sense of Freedom, where he'd found in prison, the most dangerous prison prisoner in the Scottish penal system ever, and he was he got into sculpture by just a chance Someone, when he went to the open prison in Berlin, he, someone handed him a pair of scissors and it changed his life, you know. Yeah, my father had that book. Things like that. I was hoping that, you know, 
people could write and express themselves. You know, now every every bastard's doing it on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, it? that's what I was just going to say. You <laughs> if you're doing that now, if you're trying to come up, you'd probably come up with a podcast or you'd probably come up with a, a YouTube channel. At, that, at the time, the fanzine was the only way to get your word out. That's it. That's it. But um, there was no there was no plan behind it. There was no business plan or anything. And I had a management committee who were well-meaning people, you know, so I don't think they ever read the magazine. If they read the magazine, they would have said, what the hell is this? <laughs> but they allowed me to do it. And what it did do at the time was did a lot of youth exchanges because I thought a lot of these people have never been outside this estate. And I ended up taking them to um, Spain, Italy. We actually went on a trip to New York, uh, about 25 of us, you know, for like 20 quid each or something, you know. Um, so it was just trying to give people different experiences, you know, and, um, you know, so I think now when you meet some of them, they say, oh, yeah, it was a brilliant It changed my life, that, you know. But the thing about the end, it, it encouraged people to write, I think. And a lot of fanzines grew up around the country. And they cite the end as the influence. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people... Sorry. I read that um, you, were, uh, you, you were trying to distribute yourself at matches and you weren't very successful. And you got a friend of yours, uh, Mick Parr, who was one of the hardest, looked like one of the hardest men around and he would go around and muscle people into buying it, yeah? Yeah, good research. Yeah, he was. He had an interest in sales technique. Basically, go fucking buy it, your minge bags. You know, and that was a. Uh, you know, Mick was well known at the match, and I think he had, by issue number three, you know, he took it on board, and he started. I started writing with him, and that. Uh, and we never signed the articles because uh, we wanted to be anonymous, you know, and we didn't want the management committee saying. These are mostly your articles, or you know, Mick Potter lives on Scotland Road. He doesn't live on the estate, you know, where you're supposed to be. With. So it was a bit. We didn't want to sign it for various reasons, you know. But um, yeah, it be, you know, it became successful in te- not monetarily successful because we never had. We just used to sell it for thirty pence or something, you know, and we'd have a bag full of money, and we'd just go on the ale with the bag full of money. So can you tell us, Peter, about the evolution of the farm, the early days of the farm? Um, yeah, well, there was this group called The Excitements, which you mentioned. I think I might have done one or two gigs with them, but um, one of the lads who started The Excitements, or one of the founder members of that called Steve Grimes, he's still in the farm now, but there was another lad called Phil Stevenson who did a bit of an audition and wanted me to... What had happened is I'd... Um, my mate, his mum ran a pub, and it was in a place called Mellon, which was on a hill, just in between Kirby and McGull. And it was a lovely country pub, you know. So when some nights I'd stay, on Saturday nights sometimes I'd stay in his house, you know. And uh, it was during the licensing hours 
of Sunday where pubs used to show up between two and five. And his brother was, I said, what's that noise? He said, that's our kid. He's got a band. They call the Excitements. And there's about eight, seven or eight musicians in there. He was, this, his brother was on violin or something. But he didn't have a singer. And I'd never intended to be a singer. I'd been in a bass, I'd been in a band at school playing the bass. Uh, but I wasn't really the forefront of that band. There was another, another person who was, wanted to be the singer, you know. But um, I'd always thought that because, it was in, because I'd sung at the family parties, and I was also in the school production of Oliver, believe it or not, as one of the workout boys. And so obviously the music teacher thought I could sing in tune, you know. <clears throat> And I believe so that, uh, there's, well, a big, sorry, Pierre, there's a big uh, turning point in your life, actually, when you went to, to Paris and uh, the clash, you ended up backstage, the clash. Yeah, <clears throat> that, was bef- that was just around about the time that the farm, of, you know, I was like maybe rehearsing with the farm. I don't know the exact timeline, but that was about 81. Um, and be- I think it was because I did the end and because I was getting a bit of, you know, um, People were saying they enjoyed the end. That's probably gave me the confidence to say on this Sunday afternoon, I can, I'll have a go at singing, you know, and that's all I did. And, and there was, <clears throat> it's probably about seven or eight musicians. Now, the one lad, Phil Stevenson, who played bass, um, he liked me voice. He said that I had emotion, you know. There's a couple of lads in there who were like more troggy, trog style, you know, long hair. And they probably knew I did the end, Scally magazine, they'd call it, and probably saw me and thought, he's not for us. We want someone with long hair doing Genesis covers or whatever, you know. But anyway, this one lad, Phil Stevenson, said, uh, oh, you know, they're not going to, the others don't like it, but I like it. And I want to get Steve in the band who plays guitar, who was an original member of the Excitements, but wasn't then. And he got him back. And we went, I went to a garage in McGull. Cedar Grove, uh, and I found out later, years later, that John Lennon lived there for a while in McGull. I don't know why, but I think he, when he was getting shipped around various family members, you know. Um, so I, I sang and I sang something, uh, Waiting for the Man, a uh, couple of Stones numbers, a couple of Velvets Underground. They were difficult songs to sing, you know. But um, they still liked it, and they said, oh, well, let's form a band, you know. But they were writing songs uh, which I didn't like the lyrics to, you know. I didn't write them, and I was having to sing them. And eventually, I was saying, "I don't, I can't sing these songs. You know, they're not, they're not my lyrics, and I don't feel any attachment to them." So I started writing my own lyrics. So that would have been yeah, eighty-two, maybe eighty-one, eighty-two. Yeah. And can you tell us how songs come into the picture? Uh, well, that was a bit later. That was about 84. We met him on the Oxford Roadshow. And I'm not sure whether it was when the farm were on as an unsigned band or when the end were on. I can't remember which program it was, but the end had been on maybe 83. The farm were on maybe 84. So it was one of those episodes. And they were just getting interviewed. Madness. They were past the peak in terms of popular appeal. But... Um, we met them and he, we got on great with them, you know, and I think they thought, oh, these, these are like the Scouts Madness almost, you know, but uh, we had that same type of mentality, you know. 
Um, so we got to know him. And then another lad who used to write into the magazine from London, a lad called Mick Mahoney. He was on the front cover of Time magazine. Time out, sorry. Confessions of a Football Hooligan. It was a big article on him. And he was a young playwright. He was a brilliant playwright. But we saw this on the front of Time Out in London. And we wrote him a letter saying, you know, your article was, you know, inaccurate. You know, and we just told him what was wrong with his article. So he wrote back to us and he started writing for us, you see. But he knew Suggs. So he, he must have uh, introduced us in terms of saying, oh, you know, those lads you met at the Oxford Road show, would you be interested in helping them out? And Suggs invited us down. So we recorded in his studio for a week in about 84 and we released Hearts, Hearts and Minds and he produced it. And he, he didn't charge us a penny. I think we had to stay in King's Cross hovels, you know, bed and breakfast, you know. It, was really, it wasn't very... Uh, it wasn't very attractive, really. But when we were going in the studio, it was Magnus's studio. It was fantastic. And it was a real, you know, it was a real chance for us, you know, in terms of to get into a good studio and, and record because we'd only ever done John Peel sessions. Yeah, and I, I bet... We'd never, have, we'd never afford going into a good studio, you know, and going in with decent equipment. And um, so it was a great break for us, yeah. Well, I've heard Sean Sorry, Peter. I heard Sean Ryder talking about uh, how he seen you guys and your image, and he said, oh, did this, they were in the same clothes as us. And I know there was pressure for both you guys to kind of wear the record company. You didn't bow to it. And your image kind of became the image that would inspire a generation, the kind of working class, casual image as it became. Yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't take any credit for that. We were just dressing the way people dressed, you know. Uh, I mean, I think we were probably the first band to do that. There was another band called Accent, but they were a London band. But they had Sergio Tichini on and, and Felix Ops and sports gear. We'd moved on from that. We were, we were tweed jackets, cord jackets, you know. And it was a different look, really, you know. But I think Kigouls, I think that's what Sean Ryder saw us on the Oxford Road Show. And that's what, it, you know, they're just like us, you know, if they can do it. And he, he's... He never admitted it when they were at the height of uh, selling records. It was a few years later, you know. But uh, obviously he saw us on the Oxford Road Show. And we, we'd done a few things with Tony Wilson. And we played Granada's Reports. And we played with bobble hats on and cricket hats on. And this was about 84, 85. And there's no footage of it. They either got destroyed or it never got televised. So either... We, we were always of the impression Tony Wilson might have destroyed the tapes so there wouldn't be any evidence of a Liverpool band looking like that before the Manchester bands, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and Speculation. Maybe it was just a cock-up, you know. The farm toured with the House Martins in 87. Ah, oh, they were absolutely brilliant. Um, Paul Heaton. And it was, um, I got a phone call of my auntie saying, 
of a fellow called Simon Moran who became SJM Promotions, one of the biggest promoters in Western Europe, you know. And he went, hey, we've got the House Martins tour, he said. You know, he's from Warrington and that. And, uh, and he said, I'll be the tour manager. So he was helping us out at the time, you know. And we went on tour with them and it was fantastic. We went down a storm, you know. We sounded probably a little bit like the House Martins in a way. Uh, <clears throat> we'd seen Big Audio Dynamite in 86 in Liverpool. And I thought that was the future of music, samples, drum loops. And I don't think Big Audio and Dynamite get the credit, really. But they were like, they were years ahead of the game, you know, years. They were using um, hip-hop loops and samples from Spaghetti Westerns. It was unbelievable stuff, you know. And it wasn't really till a few years later that we could afford samplers and we were able to do it. Um, but in the House Martins period, Paul Heaton and... Stan Collymore were going to get us a record deal on their label. They'd sorted out a label with Polydor, and it was all sorted. Uh, but Stan Collymore then decided he was going to go to um, to write children's books, um, and he disappeared. So the record company idea fell through. The record company was going to be called Fair Play Committee, which was, an, was Paul Heaton and Stan's idea was uh, the Fair Play Committee was set up in America to get black music onto pop pop uh, stations, you know, because it was black, really. You know, it, was, it wasn't it was allowed on, you know. We, uh, we actually interviewed Stan. Yeah, I listened to that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and lovely guy spoke very eloquently about the, the House Martins and the very yeah. amicable, we said at the time, breakup. They actually broke yeah. up in Dublin. All oh, right. We played SFX with the House Martins. I seen you guys. Yeah, Ormond Multimedia you know. Center, nineteen ninety five. That's it. That was it. That was Roy Stagnite. But in eighty seven, we played SFX, and we stayed in a dos house. Is it Gardner Street? Is it? It was a flea pit. You know what I mean? I mean, I know you know. It's probably, it's probably uh, gentrified now, isn't it? Or maybe it's not. <laughs> yeah. But it was that. You know, we were thinking, this is rock and roll. You know, you can't get, you can't get much of it. It was like. It was like the Doss houses we'd stayed in in King's Cross, you know. It was, it was the pits, you know. But, so we played to all these people at the SFX with the House Martins and then we went back to this, uh, this hovel, basically. So we're, we're coming up towards the, the end of the 80s and so Spartacus was looming. Yeah, we, we didn't have... Um, because this record, this... Um, this recording deal fell through. You know, we didn't really know what to do, and we, we thought we were like uh, we thought we were the clash at the time. So we're saying, no one, everyone gets a share of the. You know, if we get a record deal, everyone shares it. There's no you know major songwriter, so we were going to do that. So we said to uh, Simon Moran, who's the tour manager, he said, "Well, I'll be on twenty percent." Oh I went, Simon, you'll be on a wage like the rest of us, you know. And he went, you can't do that to me. I'm the manager. I'm, no, you were the tour manager. But So there's a big... Anyway, he always cites that as the thing that got him to where he is now, the fact that uh, he never had anything in writing. We said to him, basically, Paul Heaton and Stan Collymore have sorted this deal out. You know, a normal manager would, but they were representing us as the manager. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why it was a bit clouded, you know. But looking back on it, he was probably right, I think. You know, he... He probably, if he was going to be the manager, you know, and um, but he carried, 
years later when we were successful, he did all our tours, you know, so we didn't fall out that much. And we're still friendly with him now, you know. But it gave, uh, it, we, after that, there was a period where we thought, we stopped caring about getting a record deal. And we didn't really understand how the music industry worked. We thought it was all on a meritocracy. We didn't realise you had to have a press agent and a plugger, and you had to pay them a lot of money per month to get in the music press, you know. Uh, and it wasn't really until 89, one of the lads who did our T-shirt said to us, why aren't the farm successful? You know, you do you play in Liverpool and everyone loves it, and why aren't you successful? And they said, well, economics, money. We've got no money to do anything. So he said, I know this fella. You're one of them, I know this fella. They might lend you some money. Thought, oh no, someone wants to clean the money, you know. But, but it, in fact, it was, um, still wouldn't tell us who it was, but as soon as I met him, I had an inkling who it was. It was someone from the Moores family who were um, the Moores Little Woods Pools. And it was the grandson. And he was only in his early 20s and all that. And he had a pair of ripped jeans on. You know, he didn't look like a, you know, the heir to a multi-million empire. But he just said, well, what will it take uh, for the farm to get a few singles out on an album? And I w went on what we'd been told by Polydor and the, what would have been the Paul Heaton deal. Um, and I, they were going to give us a £25,000 advance. So I said £25,000. Three singles in an album should be able to record it, market it, you know, and get it, maybe get it in the indie charts. That's all we were thinking, indie charts, you know, maybe get it in the top 20 of the indie charts, you know. And he went, okay, I'll, that's a deal. And so, well, what if we don't sell any records? Of what if we split up through musical direction? And he said, well, that's my, you know, that's my risk, you know. So we went brilliant. So we got in touch with Suggs, got in touch with our mate, Kevin Sampson, who'd been involved with the management of the group before. And we said, look, we've got a mystery backer. We wouldn't tell him. Who. The person who introduced me to uh, the lad, Barney Moore, wanted his secrecy kept. He didn't want everyone to know it was someone from the Moores family. You know? So we kept it secret who it was uh, until about February 1990 when Suggs decided to come to Liverpool for a meeting. And Kevin, who was working in London at the time, but he was from Merseyside, Kevin Sampson, came up with, and Kevin did this blueprint, how to get the farm into the top 40. And it was in February 1990, and it, it, it's brilliant. I've still got it upstairs in the loft. It was brilliant. Everything he put on there was what we did. You know, get a good up-and-coming plugger, get a good press agent. Get, go into a studio, get a good producer, get a good engineer, buy new equipment. And he put he, he put it on a piece of paper, you know, about four sides of A4. So they had a meeting. And for some reason, I wasn't at the meeting. I was probably doing an interview or something, but I wasn't at the meeting. After the meeting, Suggs and Kevin and everyone in the farm, they said, how did it go? I said, oh, it was a disaster. <laughs> he said, why? Why? He said, because Kevin, and this is the way Kevin was, uh, he's, one, the first line was uh, um, we will set up a company called Ruthless Management um, which would be me and Suggs and Barney Moore uh, Barney will uh, deposit £25,000 into this bank account you know 
and everyone was going, whoa, wicked. <laughs> so they wouldn't, they were like thinking, you know, no, we don't want it. We don't trust this set, set up. So then we said, well, okay, we don't do that. Why don't you set up the label? Kevin can be the brains behind it in terms of this is what you should do. You set up the label. So then you, everything's on your plate, you know. And so that's what they agreed to do, February 1990. Unfortunately, we didn't get directorship of, or we didn't get on the board. We should have got on the board, but, but we went for the 50-50 profit share. And we'd, we'd based that on factory records, not realising the factory records was a basket case. We didn't know that. It seemed to be successful. But the 50-50 profit share it was a disaster for you know for the uh, for groups really because basically the company could spend what they wanted and it come off and then whatever the costs were you'd get fifty percent of the profit you know so but in that period from February nineteen ninety to Spartacus coming out in March ninety one everything that Kevin suggested turned to gold you know it was like even the major record companies were going. Who are these people? You know, it was unprecedented in the music industry. It hasn't been given um, the plaudits, really, because it was purely indie. Everything was independent. These people had no experience of the music industry. Bill Drummond used to ring up and go, uh, who's behind this? Come on, who's behind it? He was thinking it was Tony Wilson or someone of that ilk, Malcolm McLaren or someone, you know, who was the brains behind it, but it was... It was Kevin Sampson, and uh, it was everything he did seemed to be the right move, you know. Uh, it was chaos, absolute chaos in the in the um, in the office. Jamie Reed, who did the Sex Pistols cover, knew Carl Hunter quite well, our bass player, and he went into the uh, office and he saw how chaotic it was, you know, and said, uh, "This is exactly what the Sex Pistols wanted to be in terms of in terms of." DIY punk, you know, and it was it was mayhem, but it was everything was working, you know, everything was going right. Uh, it's only when it started to go wrong that we realised that the economic model wasn't the best. The album was a was a juggernaut. It just seemed to be everywhere. I mean, you had you know Groovy Train, even the in, intro, the the small little guitar lick at the beginning. You know what song it is. Yeah, but yeah. The, all together now. We, I mean, we can't not get away from the opus of that album. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Actually, before I get onto that, the the release you did of Stepping Stone. Yeah. Looking back. Do you regret not releasing it on CD, on tape? On yeah. Well, we didn't have... We thought we were going to get... We thought it was going to be like an indie, you know, played on John Peel and maybe Janice Long and that. But it was... It, what had happened was Stepping Stone came out only on 12-inch. And it was Terry Farley, the DJ from London, who we knew from the end. He used to write to the end as a Chelsea fan. 
going, oh, we, we'd love to do a magazine like yours, but it's, it's too left-wing. It's too, you know, we, we could never do that at Chelsea. But in the end, they did a Chelsea version of the end, but it was more dance, music orientated and fashion, you know. Uh, and it became Boys O. And it was a phenomenon by 89 in London, 1990. So Terry became one of the remixes, you know, for the album. But he'd suggested uh, Stepping Stone. Kevin had given him a tape outside the Limelight Club in London, in Shaftesbury Avenue. Said, this is the farm, you know, you know the farm from the end now. Yeah, yeah, I'll listen to it. And he came back to Kevin and went, yeah, it's just a bit too fast. You need to slow it down. And I've got the perfect loop for it. He said, there's this underground, it's the biggest record in London at the moment. And it's called The Power by Snap. He said, but it's only ever going to be an underground record. It'll never be a top 40. It's just an underground, hip London record. So we used The Power Snap loop under it. Uh, anyway, by the time we released Stepping Stone, the power snap was number one because <laughs> record companies had picked up on it and they knew what was going on in the clubs of uh, of London and, and re- released it. No one ever really said, oh, that's the power loop, but it had that same sort of feel. So it, it, it just flew out the dance record shops in London. Suggs on the, it was released on the, the Monday, I think. And on the Saturday, Suggs and Kevin were go- and Terry Farley were going around London in cars with hundreds of records, 12 inches in the back, trying to supply all these hip dance music uh, record shops. So it was a phenomenon. So we didn't really, we weren't expecting that. But it had a midweek of the, in the top 40, and we just ran out of product. We ran out of records. There was no seven inch, there was no CD, and there was no tape. If it had had that, it would have been a top 40 smash. You know? Kevin, after Spartacus, said we should re release that. But we go, no, we, we'll upset the dance purists. You know, he was right again, but we. The vinyl purists. <laughs> the vinyl purists, yeah, but that's what we were saying. But Kevin was right, I think. We argued against him, but by that time, because we'd had success, you know, everyone wants to say, you know, and Kevin, if we'd have gone with Kevin, Stepping Stone would have been a massive hit after Spartacus. Instead, we released Don't Let Me Down. And it got into the top 30, I think, or whatever, but it wasn't a big hit, but it was on the album, you see. So most people had bought the album and it was all a bit uh, downhill from then on, you know. Can you can you tell us about the, the genesis of All Together Now? I know yeah, it was um it was an instrumental that maybe you guys used to play at the end of gigs and you were struggling, not struggling, there's no struggle of lyrics, but uh, I I read somewhere that you kind of like uh Tony Wilson again. Yeah, yeah. That's true, that yeah. Um that's it was just something in the enemy. He was saying Phil Stills and Belly Egg's gonna be the, the Sergeant Pepper of this generation, you know, so I just started singing, Tony Wilson again, Tony Wilson again, Tony Wilson, something like that. And anyway, eventually when we got to record it, I'd got the lyrics all together now, you know. Uh, but it was an old song called No Man's Land. We took a few of the verses from it. And the, I'd written that after um, Michael Foote at the Cenotaph. I was so angry that the right-wing press in, in in England had portrayed Michael Foot as, uh, as not caring, you know, 
wearing shoddy clothes, a donkey jacket, they called it. And I was fuming about it because I knew a little bit about the First World War, and I know it was an imperialist war, and you, you, it was nothing to do with freedom. It was to do with colonialism and imperialism. And so I was fuming, and because he was just getting lambasted by the right-wing press, um, it made me angry. So I'd read about this story about the unofficial truce, so that's how I wrote the lyrics. But it was six verses. It was all about Kitchener having to go to address the House of Parliament, saying why there was no activity on the Western Front. Uh, because people are basically, I think it's, I think the estimates are 100,000 people on both sides were involved in some sort of fraternity on that day. And I just thought it was a, a great analogy with dance music. The dance music, different, you know, different... Uh, Different races and different classes were coming together in, on, in, under the umbrella of dance music. So I thought it was a good analogy. Um, no Man's Land fitted with what Steve Grimes, Eno had used, Eno had used Packabell in one of his records. And Steve Grimes is a big Eno fan. But he also won, he always referred it as the wool advert. Packabell's Cannon was on a, an advert for wool, British wool or whatever. And he said, you should use no man's land lyrics with that wool advert. You know, the, and so eventually we did. But we didn't have the lyrics yet. But we played at one of the concerts in the summer of 1990. We just played Packabell's Cannon, the strings. I didn't have the chorus to all together now then. And it went down like it was unbelievable. It went down brilliantly. The, the, intro, had, the intro was just haunting. It's, it's... Yeah, yeah. I think, you know... Um, it's one of those. It's one of those songs that uh, I never get. I never get tired of listening to because it can be listened to, and it can mean something to different people. You know, and it, for me, it's a sad song. So when I start singing it, I feel an element of melancholy. Hardy thought the founder of the Labour Party. He thought it was the beginning of the revolution, you know, that both sides had come together and they were going to rebel against the hierarchy of both armies, you know, but it was a pipe dream, you know, that never came to fruition. And I think Keir Hardy died a few months after the truce, you know, in 1915. But I think in terms of an event, I thought it had to be publicised. Just a Paul McCartney did Pipes of Peace after I'd written No Man's Land, but he got to it first. So people go, oh, that's a copy of. But I think Pipes of Peace is a bit twee compared to Altogether. I think Altogether Now can mean so much to different people, as I say. You know, even, believe it or not, like, uh, you know, people in the British Army, you know, think it's their squad. You know, they, they it's a peace song. And you're listening to the lyrics. What's wrong with you? You know. Yeah, it's, it's anti-war. Yeah, it's. 
I just thought in terms of analogy for the modern day, I don't think things have changed that much. Mm-hmm. And I've said that a few times on Twitter, that what's happening with the pandemic, what's happening with uh, Boris Johnson and that old Etonian brigade, it's exactly what happened in the First World War. When all those powers began, I, I was fuming when um, 19... In 2016, they had commemorations for the Powers Brigades. But I've read up a lot of history on that period, you know, and when they were recruited, and many were recruited from Ireland, not just from um, from um, the north. They were recruited from all over, as you, as you probably well know. And it was despicable the way they were treated because the hierarchy of the British Army were only interested in colonial glory they expected, uh, you know, they expected to be cavalry charges. They were all Sandhurst graduates, and they treated the Powers with contempt, really. That's why when the, fa- the Powers uh, were sent over the top at the Somme, it was complete disregard for, um, for their lives, because as far as they were concerned, it was the working class. They were, they were the mud on the, f- on the feet, you know, the dirt on the, on, on the boots. And Liverpool commemorated the Powers Brigades and all that recruitment. There was a fellow called Lord Derby, who was uh, Lord Derby had an estate on Merseyside, and he was the aristocracy. Went, later went on to admire Mussolini, believe it or not. But he was one of the major recruiting people for the uh, Powers Brigades, and he was so good at it that he was uh, promoted to Minister of War by about... Uh, 1916, and um, after the Somme, he was going to get sacked. There were so many reports of like blood, you know, atrocities and bloodshed and sheer indifference to the suffering of the Pounds Brigade. So he was going to get sacked, and Lloyd George was going to sack him. But uh, this Lord Derby said, Well, if you sack him, Lloyd George, uh, if you sack him, uh, General Haig was his mate, you see, Lord Derby's mate. If you sack him, I'll resign and it'll bring the government down. Mm. So he never got sacked. So he carried on this mad idea that he could walk slowly towards machine guns. You know, <laughs> it was just un- unbelievable. You know, unbelievable. How, how, did you class- feel, sorry, how did you feel about these big multinational companies using the that um, the little uh, the, the breakout piece to sell chocolate bars at Christmas? Like, how did you feel about that? You know, I think it was an ad there a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Uh, Sainsbury's did the ad, yeah. The bastards not never got in touch with us. <laughs> if they would have had to use all together now, we could have stung them for a lot of money. But you know, it was a brilliantly shot ad, but uh, to sell a supermarket, I think it was distasteful myself. You know, but, but come on. you've made money out of it's your most popular song. You've made money out of it, but you know, our intention was to publicise the event. Rather than you know, I mean, when when it was a popular song in '91, we had all sorts of advertising companies get in touch with us trying to buy it, and we said no to them all. You know, and it was a lot of money. Things like British Gas and people like that, and we say, uh, and we said, yeah, we can have it when you renationalise. Come back to us when you renationalise. You know, things like that. And it was a bit of a bit a way of us getting back at that sort of like uh, hierarchy. You know, not that it give gains you any favour. I mean, people say, I mean, people say about the England song, I mean, I, we none of us support England, you know, but a lot of teams had adopted altogether now. 
And if England had said, we want to do it, it was supposed to be Robbie Williams doing the England song. Uh, but he couldn't do it for some reason or whatever. Uh, so they had to use the original and put a choir on top. And one of the choir, the lead uh, choir boy was Nathan Carter. He was a massive star in uh, in Ireland now. That's an exclusive. He was the lead choir boy in that. But, um, you know, with the... With the you know, we don't we don't like the jingoism surrounding with the English football team, but the FA took us in and they sold us a good story. They said, Oh, we want all races to be all nationalities uh, yeah, and races to be you know involved with this, you know. Uh, so you know, we want people who've come from India, people who come from Africa to get behind or to, so they sold us that idea, but on reflection, maybe we shouldn't let them use it, you know, but as Irish fans, it's bad to hear the English squad using it, but as a Liverpool fan, it's even worse to hear the Everton team using it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that was my dad's fault in a way. I mean, Everton used it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Do you ever regret not making it to the Christmas number one? Not really, no, because we went to um, Andy MacDonald, who was Go Discs. He came into the studio and heard it. We never let anyone into the studio, but... Because Chaz Smash, who was the dancer of Madness, he was the dancer of Madness. So uh, Chaz Smash was A&R man for Go Discs. So Sug said, oh, Chaz wants to come in and listen to him. We were all, I don't know. So anyway, he came in and he said, oh, I want to play this to Andy McDonald. Will he let him in and listen to it? So Andy McDonald came in to listen to it. He was the head of Go Discs. He just had the number one with Beats International, I think, with uh, Norman Cook, you know. And he came in, listened to it, and went, that's a Christmas number one. He said, if you come with, if you sign with me, and he mentioned this figure they give us to sign to them, which is a lot of money, you know, lottery numbers, you know. And we just went, nah, you're all right. We'll stay with our mates. <laughs> and that, I don't know whether it was the right idea, but I think on reflection, I think it was because we would have been the worst of the worst on the People would have talked about it in Liverpool or, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but it might have got to number one. But we weren't that bothered, really, you know. The, we the video for what was it? I always thought it was family members. Am I right? Or what the hell did you cast? Yeah. That was mainly a lot of my family members, yeah. Who used to be sitting around, you know, singing songs at Christmas, you know. And uh, a lot of them came down on the train. And they had a great time. I mean, because the, uh, I think it's fair to say they like a drink. <laughs> you know, and, if, uh, if, if we're talking about the video for All Together Now, we have to talk about the American version. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't like that. What? I didn't like <laughs> it that. Was, that hey, guess who done that? Aid Edmondson done that. Really? Aid Edmondson, um, he directed that, yeah. And I, I'd forgotten about that, but... Our bass player reminded us the other week, A. Edmondson um, had done it, you know. Uh, and I didn't like it because I had to fall into a trench. And my throat was already sore from singing for two years non-stop. And after I fell into that trench, it's something, I don't know, it's something like was in the lod lodged in the back of my throat, or I thought it was, for, uh, for a long time, you know. They wanted uh, an MTV version. They said that won't get played on MTV in America because it's a load of middle-aged people in a pub, you know, old people. And was they didn't want that for Groovy Train either. Wasn't there also something about 
MTV and black and white videos. You know, unless you were a big star, they, they, they wouldn't push a black and white video. Maybe for some not. Reason. Yeah, maybe that was something. But also, it wasn't a few years later that he ended it. Yeah. A black and white video in a pub. So I'm not saying they got the idea from us, but they did one in a pub and it showed all the time, you know, so I don't know. You mentioned there, Ruby Train. How did you get built in? Oh, Brookside Close. How did you get him to get onto the uh, video? Um, our, our drummer, Roy, is, um, his girlfriend worked for Phil Redmond. So I think that was the connection. You looked like you had a good day. And we, he, do, he, he was fantastic, you know, he was fantastic. Bill Dean, um, which is not his real name, was it? Hmm. it was, um, what was his real name? Forgotten it. Anyway, it's uh, he called himself Bill Dean after Dixie Dean, and okay. Everton player. So, what what got you into obviously writing books, Peter? You've written a few books. Can you tell us about any of the books you've written? Uh, I just got asked to basically. I, I know it's just another bit of chance, you know. Uh, the person who who recommended me for the the Liverpool photographic book when football was football, Liverpool was Andy Mitten, who does United We Stand, their main fanzine, United's main fanzine. So he was approached by uh, this publishing company, Haynes Publishing, who do the car manuals or did the car manuals. And they were branching out into uh, to doing football and cricket uh, books, you know, and he said, he, he said to Andy Mitten, uh, who do you recommend? And he recommended me. And I was a bit unsure at the start because I didn't know how to, how do you lay these things out? You know, how do you do it on where? I didn't really, I was a bit, you know, it was a bit of a mystery really, you know. Uh, it wasn't just uh, the idea of doing it. It was like, how do you do it? I won't be able to do that, you know. And, and then Andy Mitten said, it's, oh, it's dead simple. You know, it really is simple. It's literally you type it up on a Word document, choose a photograph from the archive and say, you want it next to this bit of type so that's how I did it you know and you put the serial number of the photograph and then they design everything you know and it went it became um, of the when football football books the Liverpool Man United were the first Liverpool one so outsold the Man United one you know unbelievably uh, and it's be mainly I think because Shankly was uh, was part and parcel of it you know the whole book whereas I don't think United had the archive of the photographs. We had a great archive, you know, uh, for Liverpool photographs, and I don't think Andy had that. So the Liverpool book, but then he did Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, all the teams, Celtic Rangers. But the Liverpool book was still the bestseller. And so a few years ago, someone rang me up from Penguin and said, would you be interested in doing a book on the boot room, boys? You know, and the boot room at Anfield, you know. I said, it's all been done. It's all been written before. Um, so she phoned me a few times, out the blue, 
And she just said, no, we want your take on it because you're a fan. And I went down to a meeting in London with her and then I got to the gist of why they wanted it. It's because the Liverpool, when football was football, had outsold all the others, you know. And she said, but we want your fans' perspective and the social history of the club rather than just the goals and that, you know. So that's what I tried to do. So if you see a lot of the photographs in the boot room, boys, a lot of them are the crowd and outside the ground and training. So there's not many photographs of goals at all because they, they can go in other books, you know. And I wanted to find out what made Shankly, uh, basically how he transformed the club from being a club in the doldrums with no ambition into the kings of Europe. Yeah. And it all starts with Shankly. You know? yeah. I think you talk about uh, social uh, history and culture. I remember when we get the boat over to Liverpool in the 90s, we go straight up to Melwood and the, the gate man was always, you give him a bottle of whiskey, he'd let you in to watch the boys training. You could chat to the players, go off. You can't do any of that now. It's just, you can't get near them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's gone completely. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Th- if you see the book and when you see the book, it's, it's, um, you know, I'm glad I did them. And there weren't many mistakes in them. The only one mistake in the first one was that I had a picture of fashion crazy footballers I put. That was a reference to the end. We had, we had an article called Fashion Crazy Yorkshireman when we used to laugh at the way Leeds fans were dressed, you know. And so it was a reference to that, but I had a photograph as soon as, but it was from 75, I think, before he signed for Liverpool. Because he had an open shirt on. He was still playing at Middlesbrough, I think, at the time. And someone got in touch with me and said, uh, that photograph as soon as he wasn't playing for Liverpool then. <laughs> yeah, no, but the point is. So you'd always get people picking up on this, you know. Yeah. But no one's found a mistake. One person found a mistake in the boot room boys, but it was just a typo. Someone was spelt. Some player was spelt one way and then a different spelling on the same page, you know. So I'm proud of that, that they haven't, no one else has found mistakes, you know. You talking to me? Our fight's got nothing to do with liquor and prostitution and dope. Oh, yeah? You talking to me? That'll do it, boys. What the fuck do you think you're talking? Just again, just take you back to the, to the Ormond Multimedia Centre in, in 95. It was a powerful gig. And at yeah. the end, with Pete Wiley, he's done, he's done uh, Sinful. Pete Wiley was on stage, which is... Yeah. And I always remember after the gig, he's all came down and just walked over to the bar. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was just yeah, we, it was unheard of, even then, you know? Yeah. I think it was because we were splitting up as well. <laughs> well, we were, you know... We tended to do that, but, uh, you know, I think if that had been 1991, we probably would have gone backstage. And Because it was it was Roy Stagnight, and there was about 30, 40 lads come over. And we had a game of football. Um, loads of us went to Kilmaine, and then we had a game of football. And then we played in the uh, the Arts Centre, was it, or something, what it was called. I can't remember. But it was right next to Liffey. Uh, and it felt like it was the end, you know. It felt like it was the end of the 
we just we toured America and we'd done a two or three month tour of America. And when we toured with Big Old Old Dynamite, you know, it was like it was fantastic. We were playing big venues and Groovy Train was in on MTV and we were on getting into the Billboard top top fifty or I think it got to forty one Billboard or whatever. So everything was happening, you know, but when we went back on our own, it was low key. It was low key and we had a great time. Um, but you could feel like this has run its course, you know. Everyone's getting on each other's nerves a bit. Uh, we'd left and went to Sony Records. They bought up uh, the idea of they bought our back catalogue, you know. And we were in we were with Sire Records in America, so they Seymour Stein. We'd signed all you know the Ramones, the Bunny Men, uh, Talking Heads, Madonna. You know, he was absolutely brilliant. He was a he, he really backed the farm, you know, and he really uh, helped us out. In 94, he gave us an advance to tour, you know, otherwise we wouldn't be able to tour. And we were actually on the Eagles tour bus in Hotel California on the side of it, you know. But everywhere we went, the Eagles had just reformed and they tried to get, they tried to get the bus back, but the bus had been sold to a hire company and they were telling the Eagles, no, there's this British band that bought, uh, hired it out. For that period. So the Eagles couldn't get it. There's the, the touring company saying, no, we can't. They've hired it, you know. So everywhere we went, we were like two days behind the Eagles. So everyone thought we were the Eagles. And that what a laugh we had. We we arrived in Boston once about uh, eight in the morning. Because you, if you had the day off, you'd, you'd arrive, you'd drive overnight in the sleeper bus. Then you'd arrive at the hotel. And if you had a day off, you'd stay in the hotel, do the gig the next day, and then drive to the next and eight o'clock in the morning, you could hear banging on the side of the uh, of the of the tour bus, you know, Hotel California, you know. And some of the roadies went out, and and uh, you could hear them saying, "We were all half asleep." We go, "Are the Eagles on board?" You know, and they go, "Oh yeah, yeah, they're just having a bit of sleep." You know, and they were just and the our tour, our uh, our roadies had long hair, so it all fitted in, you know. <laughs> the and anyway, some of them, by the time midday came, when we could get into the hotel, there must have been 200 people there outside, 300 people with all cameras and that. And we walked off, you know, and you guys ain't the Eagles, you know. Where are the Eagles? You go, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking yes. about. We've really? heard of the Eagles, but you know, they, they, those guys told us the Eagles were coming out, you know, and it was all like, it was funny, like, but... <laughs> Peter. Thanks very much for gracing us with your presence. Really, really appreciate it. We, we could talk all night, right? Cause yeah, yeah. I mean, I could talk for hours, as you can tell. No, thanks very much for asking me.